Hey, everybody. Welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean basin. Today, Dr. Gary Forsyth is back on the show on April 27th, 2021. Dr. Forsyth was on the show, and we had a conversation about the myths and legends of the founding of Rome. Today, Dr. Forsyth is back on the show, and we're going to have a conversation about the transition period when Rome went from a kingdom to a republic. Dr. Forsyth is Associate Professor in the Department of History at Texas Tech University, based in the U.S. He has written several books over his career, including the monograph, A Critical History of Early Rome, From Prehistory to the First Punic War, which was published by University of California Press. Welcome back on the show, Gary. Okay, I'm glad to be back. Okay, so what was the Roman Kingdom? Okay, um, well, in the um, uh, sort of modern historical terminology, we call it the regal period, R-E-G-A-L, from the Latin word rex, meaning king. This was the earliest period of Roman um, history during which the uh, the Roman state was ruled by, by kings. And it was a period about which the Romans later, when they began writing their history, knew very, very little about. Um, but they eventually established sort of a standard storyline about it in which um, there were supposed to have been a series of seven kings, uh, beginning with uh, Romulus, of course, the founder. Um, and they um, worked their way back, the, the later historians sort of worked their way back chronologically to, fig- to try to figure out exactly when uh, this regal period um, uh, occurred. And the way they went about doing it was that uh, the, the Republic, which was the period of almost 500 years that comes after the regal period, uh, was characterized by uh, the Roman people electing annual officials every year. Uh, and the, the two top officials of the Roman Republic are people called consuls. We'll get to the, them here in a little bit, uh, C-O-N-S-U-L-S. Uh, and they actually, uh, the, the, the two men who were elected consuls each year gave their name to that particular year, what we call eponymous. They were eponymous officials. And that's how the Romans kept track of the passage of time during the Republic. They kept a list of the two annually elected consuls. So a few centuries later, after the Republic began, when the Romans get around to trying to figure out their distant past, they had a list of consuls that went back a good ways. Um, and um, it, it took them back to about what, what we would consider the year of about 500 B.C. Uh, and before that, then, they, they, they thought that the city had been ruled during the regal period by seven kings. Mm. Uh, and they came up with a, a chronology for these seven kings um, that extended over 244 years almost two and a half centuries. Mm-hmm. Um, and so eventually, by the time we get down to the last years of the Republic and the beginning of the empire, or what we call the Principate with the Emperor Augustus, 
there were two particular uh, scholars, one named Atticus, A-T-T-I-C-U-S, and the other named Varro, V-A-R-R-O, who worked out a chronology that everybody um, henceforth accepted as, as valid. And according to this chronology, uh, worked out by Atticus and Varro, and, and as a result today, uh, we historians refer to it as the Varonian chronology. Um, uh, Romulus founded Rome in the year 753 BC, and the Republic they, they, and, the, and the monarchy or the kingship ended in the year 509 BC, and so the, the Roman Republic. Began, began according to this uh, later chronology in the year 509 BC after the city had been ruled by by seven kings. Is the canonical source then for the year 509 that transition to republic? Is that based on Atticus and Barrow's writing solely, uh, one of the two, or? Is there additional uh, writers as well that historians uh, lean on for that year? Well, uh, there, there were certain irregularities. You know, Atticus and Varro come at the very end of a, of a long tradition of uh, Roman sort of historical reconstruction, beginning around, oh, let's say, starting probably around 220 to 200 BC. I think in the last episode I mentioned uh, Rome's earliest uh, native historian, again named Quintus, in the last episode, I uh, uh, incorrectly called him Gaius. His first name was Quintus, not Gaius. Quintus Fabius mm-hmm. Pictor, who wrote a history in Greek. Um, and he was followed by about a dozen or so other uh, persons who wrote Rome's history from early days down to their own time, Livy being the um, sort of the last one in that whole series. Uh, and Livy was a... Um, slightly younger contemporary of both Atticus and Varro. So by the time Livy comes along and starts writing his massive history of the regal period and the Republic becomes sort of the standard after that point, uh, Atticus and Varro had already established um, the, the chronology, but there had been earlier writers before who had gone before uh, in the uh, using the, the list of the consuls and, and various sorts of things. And there were certain irregularities or um, uh, problems uh, in, in the chronology. And as a result, the people who wrote and tried to reconstruct Roman history before Atticus and Varro differed somewhat uh, as to exactly when Rome was supposed to have been founded uh, or, or when the, the Republic actually began. So, for example, we know that uh, Fabius Pictor, Rome's earliest native historian, uh, assigned the foundation of the city to the year four, excuse me, uh, 747. So he actually had uh, the city uh, start six years later than what Atticus and Varro uh, eventually established. Uh, and so that there were certain um, uh, problems with the, uh, the chronology, and, and we, we have uh, some information about uh, where those difficulties lay, but uh, to a large extent, it, it, it's, it's a problem that we just have to sort of guess at. Uh, as to uh, why there were these uh, slight inconsistencies or whatever. But like I say, eventually Atticus and Varro work out a chronology 
that everybody seems to be perfectly happy with. Uh, and um, it, it's the one that um, uh, was established when, when the uh, Rome's first emperor, Augustus, erected this, this massive uh, monument in the Roman Forum as a great big uh, uh, triumphal arch in the Forum. Uh, and on the inside uh, walls of the uh, of the upright parts of, of the of the arch, he had two gigantic inscriptions carved. Uh, one was what we call the Consular Fasti, or the or the list of the consuls, going all the way back to the uh, uh, beginning of the Republic. Uh, and on the other side, on the other uh, upright part of the arch, he uh, had another gigantic inscription uh, in which he listed all of the triumphs. Uh, that were celebrated by victorious generals uh, from the time of Romulus uh, onwards uh, uh, with with, uh, dates indicating, uh, well, short entries. A triumph was like a big military parade. Um, And uh, this list of triumphs would would basically say, so-and-so celebrated a triumph over, and then whatever defeated enemy it was, uh, in year whatever, um, on such and such a day of the year. Uh, in, in the years that are given there in, in Roman numerals um, are according to the uh, chronology established by Atticus and Varro. So from, from Augustus onwards, that, that chronology of Atticus and Varro uh, became the uh, established official chronology of the Roman state going all the way back to the time of Romulus. Did Atticus and Varro live in the same period and collaborate together? Did they live in different periods? Uh, was one a mentor or another? Can you speak about the relationship between Atticus and Varro? Because you brought them up a, a few times together. Yeah, they, they, they were actual contemporaries. Atticus, uh, his full name was Titus Pomponius Atticus, uh, and he received his last name Atticus because... Uh, uh, he, he was. Um, uh, he spent a lot of his uh, life uh, in Athens, uh, in the area of, around Athens. Of course, was called Attica, um, and he, he was a he was uh, he was Cicero's uh, closest friend uh, throughout uh, uh, Cicero's uh, adult years. They were very very good friends, and in fact, we have a gigantic collection of letters. Um, between Cicero and various friends over the course of his, uh, uh, the, the last about 22 years or so of his life, um, 955 to be exact. Uh, and as a result of those letters, uh, we know an enormous amount about the last uh, couple of decades of the uh, Republic, in the years about 65 to f- uh, 43 BC. And a huge number of those letters uh, were written between Cicero uh, and, Atta- and Atticus. Um, so they, they were constantly uh, writing letters back and forth. This is, uh, Atticus was a, he was a very prominent, a very wealthy businessman. He was not a politician, he, he was a businessman. Um, and had all kinds of uh, 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 business enterprises going on in various places. And he traveled around and uh, uh, he, he served as a major uh, advisor, political advisor uh, to Cicero uh, and provided him with all sorts of gossip and information and, and, and things uh, based upon Atticus's uh, very wide uh, range 
changing network of uh, friends and associates that, that he had in, in the Roman upper class. Um, and uh, I can't remember now uh, offhand exactly when Atticus was born. They, they, they were pretty much about the same age. Cicero was born in the year uh, 106 BC. Um, Atticus uh, died, uh, I think Atticus, uh, Cicero was murdered in the year 43 BC. So Cicero was like uh, 63 when, when he met his death. Uh, Atticus lived a bit beyond that. Uh, he didn't die until, I can't remember, sometime in the 30s BC, a little, a little about a decade or so after uh, Cicero. Um, but Varro uh, was a little older than Cicero. Uh, Varro was born in the year 116 BC, so he was born 10 years before Cicero. Uh, and he didn't die. He was had a very, very long life. He didn't die until 27. BC, okay. so he lived for uh, what is it, uh, uh, eighty-nine years, I guess, eighty-eight, eighty-nine years, um, and he was he was um, uh, one of the most prolific writers of that time period, and he and he developed the reputation of being um, the most learned man among the Romans when it when it came to. consider the level of veracity in uh, the accounts of Rome's uh, kingdom period. Uh, when you have Atticus and Varro, for instance, they're writing or recounting events that would have taken place nearly at least 500 years prior. So what do scholars consider the level of veracity when um, uh, previous historians were writing about the the uh, kingdom period, the regal period. Well, what we can tell, um, we we have these, um, you know, we we have Livy's account, of course, um, in full. And before Livy, uh, there were a dozen or more attempts made by earlier uh, Romans to reconstruct their history. And we don't have those accounts 
all we have are um, statements embedded in surviving works that tell us, you know, according to author X, such and such happened. Uh, and th those things we call fragments. Um, uh, and so we have these brief statements in, made, made by authors whose works we do have, tell, giving us little, little bits and pieces of information about lost works. Um, and these dozen or so predecessors of Livy uh, are not terribly well uh, represented in this fragmentary information. In some instances, uh, for a particular author, we've only got, let's say, maybe about seven to ten of these statements uh, about earlier traditions. Uh, in some instances, we may have as much as 30 or as much as 40, some are 50. Uh, it, it just varies quite a bit. But what we can tell from this fragmentary material of people who wrote uh, before Livy, let's say it was starting with Fabius Pictor around 200 BC uh, and going down to about 40 BC, what we can tell is that um, the, the stories that they told about the kings about the earliest period were really quite well developed very early on because we have a number of uh, these fragments from Fabius Pictor's history. He's, he's the very first native Roman historian. And we are told enough information about his history to make it clear to us that most of the stuff that we uh, think of as sort of the standard storyline for the regal period was already well established uh, by the time of Fabius Pictor. Um, so apparently the, um, that, that period of, of the, of the Kings, mm -hmm. uh, was, was a period that the, um, that the historical tradition developed, uh, in, in considerable detail early on. Um, but when we compare, if, if you look at Livy's history, for example, um, he covers the, um, he covers what we uh, consider early Roman history uh, in uh, 10 of his books. Um, and, uh, and a book is uh, is not what we think of today as a book. An ancient book is basically a papyrus scroll, which would be corresponding to a chapter today, a chapter in a book, but a very long chapter, quite substantial chapter, maybe like uh, 35, 40 pages. Um, but anyway, uh, Livy's uh, history, when he was finally, when he finally ended it, mm -hmm. and he ended in the year 9 BC, so he goes all the way through the Republic and on down into part of the reign of Augustus. Mm -hmm. um, and it was a massive, massive, massive uh, work of literature. It, it, uh, it uh, comprised 142 books. Uh, and it was so gigantic that it was uh, really uh, quite a challenge uh, to preserve that work over the course of centuries because of course this is before the time of the printing press and so the only way that books could be 
uh, reproduced was by someone having to copy them out uh, by hand. Um, and so what eventually made it beyond the, the ancient time period um, into the uh, later uh, uh, time period uh, and then on us on uh, on to us today is the first ten books of Livy's history, uh, and then books twenty one to forty five of Livy's history, and in the first ten books <clears throat> cover the period uh, from the um, uh, beginning of Rome uh, down to the year uh, two ninety two B.C. Um, and then. Uh, uh, we don't have books uh, 11 through 20, but we do have books 21 through tw uh, 45. Uh, and uh, 21 through 45 cover the period 218, beginning with the uh, the war against Hannibal, the Second Punic War, uh, and goes down uh, to the year 167 B.C. And it's during that time period, uh, 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 218 to 167 B.C., uh, when Rome carries out many of its uh, really great wars of uh, uh, conquering various areas of the of the Mediterranean, and so those two gigantic chunks <clears throat> of its history that have survived to us today are really very important um, pieces of literature. But anyway, what, what I wanted to not was book one of Livy, uh, the one the, the first book of his ten books that cover the early stuff. Book one. Uh, is entirely devoted to the period of the kings. Okay. And like I say, according to the Slater Veronian chronology, that's a period of about 244 years. Um, then Livy devotes the other books of that first 10 uh, books, uh, 2 through 10, which is 9 books. Those 9 books cover the period from 509, the beginning of the Republic, down to the year 292 which is just a little over 200 years. And so he covers the kings in one book um, spanning 244 years, uh, but then he uses nine books to cover a slightly shorter period mm. of the Republic. And that gives you some indication as mm -hmm. to how little the Romans in later times actually knew about that, uh, the period of the kings. They really didn't have much information at all about that period. All they really had were stories that had come into existence in association with the uh, with the various kings, and that they became very well established and sort of standard um, uh, stories uh, for that uh, for that period. But in terms of trying to evaluate the uh, uh, historical reliability of any of that stuff in the regal period is uh, very, very difficult uh, to do, and we uh, it, it's pretty clear that uh, in, in most instances, when they describe the reigns of these seven kings, uh, that they did so in sort of stereotypical fashions. Uh, that they they uh, the, 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 there's a pattern in which uh, a, a king. Um, is thought to have um, um, done certain kinds of things to enhance the development of the Roman state. And usually the things that he does was excogitated by the later uh, uh, Romans based upon what they 
thought the king's name suggested to them. So, for example, the second king of Rome, his name was Numa, N-U-M-A, Pompilius. Um, well, Numa in later uh, Roman nomenclature was uh, was an obsolete name. No one used it in later times. Um, but it, it it's a word that <clears throat> is uh, uh, almost identical to the Latin word numen, N-U-M-E-N, uh, which in Latin means divine power. Uh, and because of that um, uh, sort of linguistic coincidence, of Numa's name, looking as if it's uh, similar to Numen, the Romans surmised that this man must have uh, been responsible for creating all of Rome's various religious institutions. And so since they, they wanted to have a king on which they could hang the origin of all of their various religious uh, priesthoods and religious calendar and festivals, all that sort of stuff, um, all of that stuff got assigned to Numa simply on the basis of the uh, coincidence of his name being similar to uh, uh, to Numa. Uh, and then his predecessor, his, uh, his successor, um, his name was Tullus Hostilius. Well, Hostilius was a perfectly good Roman name, and uh, it's, it's well known in later times. Um, the family name, um, but once again, the um, the, the, the hosty uh, part of, of that name uh, is um, uh, looks like the, the Latin word hostis, meaning enemy, uh, and so as a result, the the, the Romans portrayed this man uh, as a very warlike uh, king, someone who went out and was beating up on, on Rome's uh, enemies. Uh, and, and so the, the traditions about the kings um, were generated, I think, in large measure due to the need for the Romans in later times to have um, explanations for various institutions and things and the way they went about uh, assigning these uh, things in terms of their origin by uh, attaching them to the, these various uh, kings in, in this uh, uh, rather simplistic uh, fashion. Okay. And I want to, in a moment, go to what's known about the actual transition between the kingdom and the republic. Yeah. But before we go there, um, is anything known about how succession worked in the regal period? In terms of how each king was naturally chosen, was it um, simply by primogeniture, where it's the eldest uh, son, for instance? Do you know if women could ever right. reign as queen right. uh, of the right. kingdom, etc.? Right, right. No, we 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 know nothing at all. That that's rather that's one of the strange things about the names of the kings. Okay, um, there's only two of the seven to share uh, a, a common family name, suggesting that there, that there was some sort of hereditary connection, that the fifth and the seventh kings uh, both have the family name Tarquinius. Um, all the other kings, it's very odd. Um, now, Romulus is, is, um, is pure invention. Uh, so in a sense, we're really only talking about six kings. Um, uh, Rom- Romulus was, was a creation 
in order to give the, uh, the uh, um, a plausible explanation as to where the name Rome came from. So, uh, and, and he's and he's not given now. All, all the other kings are given um, two names. Now, in the later Roman society, um, most, but not all, most um, uh, most adult men had had a name consisting of three elements. Uh, they, they often, sometimes they didn't have the third element in the name, but they, they always had at least the first two elements. Um, the third element in the name probably doesn't uh, develop in, in the Roman society for some time. Um, but the, the, the six kings, uh, that is uh, the seven minus Romulus, uh, all have at least two, uh, and in, uh, let's see, in a couple of cases, actually three names, like a standard Roman name of later times. Um, and Roman society, as far as we know, throughout its entire history, was a, um, um, a patriarchal uh, society in which inheritance of one's name and property and all that sort of stuff went through the male line. Um, now, when we look at the names of the kings, it's quite curious because, um, like I say, the only two kings that share the same family name are uh, Kings 5 and 7. Um, uh, king number 2 is Numa Pompilius. His family name is Pompilius. King 3 is Tullus Hostilius. That's uh, Hostilius is a totally different family name. Mm -hmm. Then we come to King 4. His name is Ancus, A-N-C-U-S, Marcius, M-A-R-C-I-U-S. That's another family name. That's It's not uh, Popilius, it's not Hostilius. Uh, then we have Tarquinius, the, the, the King Five, um, and he was later called Priscus, meaning the old or the, the elder, um, to distinguish him from King Seven, who also was a, a, a Tarquinius. Then we have King Six. King Six is Servius, that's his first name. And his last name is Tullius. Um, so we have, of these six kings, two of them, only two of them have a shared family name. Uh, the other four have totally different, unrelated family names. Um, so we don't have, so if this is historical, and we're not even sure that it's historical, um, that, that is, these, these, these people may have actually existed and they may have actually been kings of Rome. Uh, we don't really know. We don't really know how the Romans in later time, um, came by this list of names of kings. And it may not even be complete. It's, it's even possible that the, uh, that, that, that the period of the early kings actually had more than these six kings, and the only ones that, that made it into the later tradition uh, were these were these six. Uh, but if, but if if we assume that the tradition is correct, uh, in that these six individuals were in fact kings of Rome, uh, based upon their names. Uh, with the exception of Kings 5 and 7, it doesn't look at all as if we're looking at a situation in which we have what you would normally think as a, a sort of a standard hereditary monarchy. Uh, 
and that's that's something that has uh, uh, you know sort of puzzled uh, modern uh, historians. And there's there's been uh, various explanations as to uh, why that was. Uh, and the the, the, the Romans, uh, the later Romans, actually uh, thought that the uh, that, that the kingship was uh, 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 was a kind of an elective uh, kingship. Uh, so that the, the way it's described in the, the tradition is that the Romulus dies; um, he doesn't have any uh, any children to succeed him, <clears throat> and the uh, uh, the Romans then bring in. Uh, an outsider uh, to be their second king. And with Pompilius, he, he's not even a Roman. Um, he, he lives in a nearby area uh, inhabited by a people called the Sabines. Uh, and um, uh, according to the tradition, uh, they, they invited Duma to come in uh, to be their uh, second king uh, from the Sabines. Um, and um, so they, they come up with various stories that explain uh, where these different kings with different names uh, actually come from. But they, they also uh, attempted to make connections um, between some of these uh, some of these people. So, for example, um, Numa is described as having a daughter um, and um, uh, as a result of, 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 of that, uh, Tolos Hostilius, no, no, excuse me. It's 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 a, it's, it's a, a king number four. Uh, king number four winds up being the grandson. Uncas Marcius is the grandson of Numa. So they they attempted to make like a, a genealogy uh, to uh, explain uh, where Uncas Marcius comes from. Um, so they, they they attempted to come up with something sort of quasi hereditary but but not 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 it, it's not at all consistent uh, in how they tell the stories about the uh, about the king so we, we really don't know um, whether that list of six kings is, is a full list uh, and we don't really know um, you know exactly how the kingship operated in terms of the, the succession of, because we look at the names and that the names clearly do not indicate that we've got uh, sort of a patriarchal hereditary succession as we would uh, as we would would expect. But the, the Roman tradition saw the kings as uh, as being sort of elected monarchs. Okay, so what's known about the transition period then? How did the what's known about how the kingdom ends, and what's known about how the republic begins? In the later tradition, the uh, the first six kings, Romulus through Servius Tullius, were viewed as uh, positive figures, uh, and they had uh, deeds ascribed to them in such a way to show that each of these six kings made a major contribution uh, to the uh, growth of the small early. Uh, Roman state. Uh, then, when they come to King Number Seven, um, he's the bad guy. Uh, he's the bad guy in the whole list. Um, that there, there might have been some uh, harsh things that some of the early kings might have done or whatever, uh, but they were all basically good guys. Uh, and so the kingship was was seen as as a positive institution that helped uh, Rome grow in a, in its early days. 
Um, but when they came to describing the, the reign of the last king, the seventh king, uh, they uh, portrayed him as, as a very wicked man. Um, and this, this corresponds to um, sort of the Greek uh, ideas of political thought uh, in which we have sort of a, um, a way in which a society develops its political institutions. In the early days, when the society is relatively small, it's under the rule of, of a monarch, a, a single person. Um, and uh, uh, if, if the, the person reigns uh, properly, then he, he's a king. Uh, that, that, that's a positive name. name. Uh, but eventually, according to this uh, sort of uh, ancient Greek theory of uh, political evolution, uh, eventually, a kingship becomes corrupted and devolves into what the Greeks call tyranny, um, a very bad rule by a single man of a monarch. Um, and once kingship uh, develops into tyranny, then there's a reaction against it. People don't like tyrants. Uh, they overthrow the tyrant and they establish a different form of government. And the uh, according to this ancient Greek theory, the next step uh, in uh, political evolution is that you go from tyranny to aristocracy. An aristocracy is a system of government in which you've got a relatively few um, people uh, managing the affairs of the state, and they are doing so responsibly. They are, they, and the, the, the word uh, aristos means best. They, uh, the government is, is ruled uh, by the best. And so the government moves along quite well for a period of time until, of course, eventually um, the, uh, the aristocracy becomes corrupted. Uh, and so aristocracy eventually develops into what the ancient Greek uh, political theorists called oligarchy rule of the few uh and that and, and that that's that's bad uh oligarchy is bad so we go from kingship to tyranny uh to aristocracy to oligarchy uh and then eventually oligarchy uh produces uh, another uh, reaction and that that leads to um uh, rule of, of the masses um and, and that goes through a good phase and then into a bad phase uh, but I mean, that, that, that's sort of the standard cycle of constitutions according to the Greeks. Okay, so when, when the Romans in later times are, are reconstructing their history and they are um, influenced by, by Greek ideas um, and they come up with a, they, they want to come up with an explanation as to how they go from the, the kingship to the republic, they use that basic theoretical model a political thought in having the first six kings be good guys uh, and then the last king he's a tyrant and so the kingship uh, degenerates into tyranny and the tyranny then provokes a reaction among the Roman people they end the kingship uh, they expel the, the last bad guy the tyrant and they establish a new form of government uh, that, that we call that they call the, the, the republic so it's sort of um, uh, a general uh, abstract terms, that, that's how they um, sort of conceive the um, development of, of, of things. Um, mm -hmm. 
Now, in terms of the the basic storyline, the seventh king um, takes over, and he's a really bad guy. Uh, he he um, um, uh, works the the Roman people uh, mercilessly by uh, putting them to work and uh, making various public work projects. Um, and he's, he's just a really mean uh, person. Um, but the uh, the straw that really breaks the camel's back uh, and leads to the ending of the uh, the kingship and the beginning of the republic uh, is based upon a story that we call the rape of Lucretia. Okay, so here's how here's how the story goes. All right, while the Romans were engaged in uh, 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 besieging a nearby town, uh, some of the leading um, men are sitting around the campfire at night. Uh, telling stories and such, uh, and they start talking about their wives, uh, and uh, each one of them is uh, trying to uh, uh, convince the others that he's got the best wife, this sort of thing. So they they decide, okay, uh, we'll uh, put it to the test. We'll uh, jump on our horses, ride back to Rome, and see what our wives are up to, and uh, find out uh, which which one of our wives is the best. Okay, so they, they, they do that, uh, and it turns out that... Um, 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 uh, Lucretia, uh, who's married to one of these um, uh, one of these uh, individuals, um, is um, uh, she, she wins sort of the, the first uh, place in, in this uh, sort of wifely uh, contest. Um, one of the persons who was engaged in this uh, um, activity was the son, one of the sons of the of the king of Rome at the time. Uh, now, the, the, now this seventh king, his name is Tarquinius, uh, and the last name that the Romans attached to him was Superbus, S-U-P-E-R-B-U-S, meaning proud or arrogant or insolent. Uh, and that's basically the way the, the Romans uh, basically call him Tarquin. It usually is translated in English as Tarquin, the proud. Um, and the Romans think of him as a, a Tarquin, the tyrant. Uh, anyway, one of his sons was in this bunch, uh, and uh, he, he then, as a result of this, conceives uh, tremendous uh, uh, um, uh, illicit lust uh, for Lucretia. So they, they, they go back to their uh, to their their military operations. But uh, uh, the, the son of the king, uh, he, he's got to have uh, Lucretia. Uh, so he sneaks back uh, at a, a, another night, uh, and. Um, uh, and rapes uh, Lucretia, um, and uh, she then uh, summons her husband, uh, along with uh, a few of his uh, closest associates, and uh, when, when they meet with her, uh, she describes how uh, the, the king's son had, had, had raped her, um, and then she, when she's done telling her story, uh, she then takes a dagger that she's been concealing in her clothing uh, and stabs herself to kill herself uh, while, while she's uh, saying, I'm not going to uh, uh, offer, uh, be, be an example to allow uh, later Roman women uh, who are raped uh, to be uh, pardoned. Uh, so, so she kills, so she commits suicide right there in the presence of her uh, husband and his closest uh, friends. Uh, then, when the when the, uh, the, the the news of uh, Lucretia's rape by the son of the king uh, becomes known, um, 
the, the, the Roman people are so outraged and so angry um, that they, they drive the, the royal family out of Rome and decide that uh, no more kings, no more kings. Uh, and so at that point, they, they then decide they're going to start a new system of government in which they elect uh, two consuls uh, to head the Roman state and to hold office for only uh, for only one year. So that, that story of the rape of Lucretia was uh, designed to uh, explain how we go from the um, from the kingship uh, to the the republic, at least uh, for the for the later um, uh, Romans. Is there anything? And I want to. Um clarify i think you touched base on it but i want to clarify in any of the accounts of this story from previous writers is it clear or is it implied why she killed herself yes it is um um, the the way this story is told is uh, she summons her husband to come he brings along three other people with him she tells she tells them what happened and she then Um, it makes it clear that you know she that that all of this happened totally against her will that she was forced to do it um and she then says that uh um and and they agree um that that she, she is blameless but then she says uh but i do not acquit myself of blame and and when they protest and say, uh, uh, you know, it's it's the mind, uh, it, it it's your will that that would would be at fault if if you uh, had had allowed this to happen and you didn't. And she says, well, I I did not acquit myself of blame, and let no woman hereafter cite me. Let let, let no unchaste woman hereafter cite Lucretia uh, uh, as a uh, as an example that is uh, and then she takes the, da- the dagger out that she's had hidden in her clothes and then she stabs and kills herself <clears throat> so what basically what she's saying is uh, no woman henceforth uh, no unchaste woman henceforth that, that is a, a a, 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 a woman who is actually blameworthy um, but claims to have been raped uh, cannot point to me legitimately uh, in order to be acquitted of, of, of any blame. So that's the, uh, that, that was her, in, in the context of the story, that that's uh, how uh, it, it is explained, and it, as as we have in so many of these early stories um, uh, for for the uh, for the Romans, the, these stories probably have no, if any, uh, historical value to them. But what they did serve in later times is uh, as a sort of moral models or examples. Uh, indicating that the Romans way back in the early days were upright uh, people and the, the, and these stories were generated to show that and to provide uh, models of conduct for uh, for later Romans. 
how does the story survive today? So how do scholars actually know about it, Gary? Like who 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 wrote who wrote or or which writers um, wrote about the story? Well, of course, in the uh, our two most detailed and surviving accounts for early Roman history are number one, Livy, writing in Latin, and then at the same time that he's writing, we have a Greek writer, Dionysus of Halicarnassus, and so they have our uh, our two fullest accounts, uh, and, and they're, they're simply repeating an already long-established uh, tradition, and the story was very, very well-known. Um, and is uh, you know mentioned uh, and alluded to by uh, by many other writers, but in terms of uh, uh, the the story being told in the sort of larger context of Roman historical accounts, the uh, the two chief accounts are uh, are Livy and Dionysius of Halicarnassus. Okay, so in this uh, conversation and chronology, we've reached the stage where Rome is now. Uh, the Roman Republic. So, a closing question, Gary. M- maybe a cl- uh, uh, may turn into another question, or this may be the closing question. Can you share the main characteristic differences then between the Roman Republic and the Roman Kingdom? Okay. Um, according to the later accepted chronology, this transition is supposed to occur in the year 509 BC, and that, that becomes a standard date and is still used by modern historians. So 509, uh, uh, we, we think of today as the of year marking the first year of, of the Republic. Um, the, 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 the Roman Republic corresponds in broad outline to what we see in in dozens and dozens and dozens of Greek city-states throughout the Mediterranean at the same time. That is, they had gone through a political evolution in which they wind up organizing their political uh, constitutions, as it were, or political institutions in a threefold manner. There there was some kind of adult male citizen assembly, uh, and one of the functions they had was electing officials who usually held office for one year uh and then uh, and so that so one component of the three-part system is, is citizen assembly second part is elected officials usually holding office for one year and then the third component that we find in these greek city states is some kind of what we call a deliberative or advisory body um and it, those three elements sort of take different shapes and different features from from state to state, but the the broad outline is basically the same as threefold division. So what we see happening in Rome is is basically the same thing uh, as we go from kingship uh, to the uh, republic. Now, we we, we think that there probably was something, uh, and so what we have with the Roman Republic is, instead of having one king uh, ruling the state for life, he is replaced by two officials known as consuls, C-O-N-S-U-L-S, who had the state for only one year, uh, and they are elected by, uh, by, by a Roman citizen assembly. And the third element uh, in the Roman Republic was the Senate. Uh, 
comes into existence with that sort of threefold general um, structure, but uh, we think that there probably existed even under the kings something, uh, some some kind of uh, body that that we could call a senate, uh, and there may have even existed some form of citizen gathering or, or assembly sort of situation. Um, but anyway, it, um, Rome in around 509, 509 BC or thereabouts makes this transition in which they eliminate uh, a lifelong king and replace him by two annually uh, elected consuls who had the state with, with equal uh, powers. And so there's a check on the power of the uh, chief heads of state in terms of their time of office. They hold office for just one year. And in addition to that, there is two of them having equal powers. And, and so there's there's a, the, the possibility of the um, consuls acting as a counterbalance to one another so that one, uh, if one attempts to step out of line and go too far in doing something, they, the other consul can uh, sort of pull them back and Okay. And you mentioned it earlier in the conversation, but to make sure it comes um, through and is uh, punctuated, when do scholars believe the, uh, the year? When, when do scholars believe the Republic, the Roman Republic began? Well, that's a somewhat complicated matter. Uh, <laughs> if, we, if we rely upon the, the later accepted uh, chronology established by Atticus and Varro at the, at the end of the Republic, Rome is supposed to be founded by Romulus, the first king in 753. That's the beginning of the regal period. The, the first year of the Roman Republic is 509. Um, um, it, 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 exactly how accurate the 509 date is, is probably pretty close. Uh, although we, we have a, sort of an external uh, Greek source of information that suggests that uh, the Roman Republic may have actually started just a few years later, uh, possibly around uh, 504 uh, BC, but that, that gets us into some pretty complicated discussions of um, uh, chronology and such. But uh, around 500 is... Uh, uh, we're fairly certain it is, is the right time to uh, date the beginning of the Republic. Okay. Always and 509. 509 is just sort of a convenient date that everybody agrees. Okay, let's, let's just call it 509 and be done with it. Okay. Always a pleasure speaking with you, Gary. Thanks for coming on the show again. Okay. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. So again, everybody, the book that I mentioned at the start of the episode that Dr. Forsyth wrote, a Critical History of Early Rome, From Prehistory to the First Punic War. I'll drop a link to it in the show notes on the Ithacabound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Gary and everybody listening, as always, wishing a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.